Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. American influence globally has been deteriorating for a long time. Trump's presidency makes more leaders more quickly hedge away from the United States as an example that they would want to follow, as a leader that they would want to engage with, as an ally that they would feel committed to. That's Ian Bremmer. He's the president and founder of Eurasia Group, a political risk analysis firm. They put out an annual report on the top risks facing the world, and this year's is a doozy. Ian has also written nine books, including most recently, Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism, about the global growth of populism. I speak with him about all sorts of things, the risks facing us in 2019, the rise of authoritarians, and whether Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey or former FBI Director Jim Comey is more responsible for the election of President Trump. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, listeners. I've got some exciting news for you. This week, we launched the Cafe Store, where you can find original Stay Tuned merchandise like T-shirts and hoodies and mugs. I'm literally wearing a Stay Tuned sweatshirt as I tape this. Maybe you've seen it before at our live shows or on social media, but now you can find them online at shop.cafe.com. Rep your favorite podcast and check out our Stay Tuned swag at shop.cafe.com. Okay, let's get to your questions. This is a question in a tweet from user LeFou, who asks, Preet, please talk, discuss about Rod Rosenstein leaving and its impact on everything that's going. And what would the road ahead look like without him? So obviously this tweet refers to the just breaking news happened a few minutes ago before we started taping here on Wednesday, January 9th, that Rod Rosenstein intends to step down as deputy attorney general uh, if and when the next nominee for attorney general, which at this point is Bill Barr, is confirmed. So this has been a question that has been of concern to a lot of people for a long time, principally because of the impact it might have on the Mueller investigation. So you remember that some months ago, there was this dramatic back and forth with the president sounding like he was going to fire Rod Rosenstein, or maybe Rod Rosenstein was going to the White House to hand in his resignation because the president is not happy about the ongoing Russia investigation. So a couple of things. One, I take the reporting at its word that Rod is leaving voluntarily, that he's not being forced out. And that's not necessarily a crazy thing. It's not necessarily born of something 
malevolent or questionable. Uh, Rod has been in government, I think, pretty much his whole adult life and all that time spent in the Justice Department, working at Maine Justice, then as a U.S. attorney in Baltimore, and now as the deputy attorney general. You burn out quickly from a job like deputy attorney general. It's a huge job. It's basically being the chief operating officer of a department that has like 100,000 people in it. It may be the case that given the ups and downs of the last couple of years and Rod's professional reputation, which I think reached a low point when he wrote that, what I think was a pretextual memo on the reasons why Comey should be fired. Remember, he said in a memo that Comey should be fired because he mistreated Hillary Clinton. And as we all know from surrounding evidence, that was not the basis for Donald Trump firing Jim Comey. So it may be that given uh, the Russian investigation is sort of fairly well entrenched in Rod's mind, that he thinks it's unlikely to be stymied, and he's at a sort of detente period with the president, you might as well leave while you're ahead. There may be personal reasons. I, I don't know, but I don't think it's that he's being forced out. So what effect will it have? You know, that's a good question. I hope I can infer, as I said a second ago, that the fact that Rod Rosenstein feels comfortable leaving means he feels that the Russia investigation is either nearing an end or is safe. Perhaps he's gotten an assurance from Matt Whitaker, the acting attorney general. But it certainly is reason for concern, if not alarm. And that is why I think the most important thing that needs to be made clear next week when Bill Barr has its confirmation hearing is how is Bill Barr going to treat the Russia investigation when he has expressed great reservations about it in this unsolicited memo that he sent as a private citizen in private practice to Jeff Sessions and the Justice Department taking issue with a very important aspect of the special counsel's investigation relating to obstruction. It's kind of an odd thing, that memo, and I think it raises very serious questions about the degree to which Bill Barr will be neutral and be fair about the Russia investigation. I do think it's very hard since it's been underway for a long time and there are aspects of the things that Bob Mueller has found uh, now unfolding in the Southern District of New York, in the District of Washington, at the National Security Division. You know, every month that goes by, it gets harder and harder to put the genie back into the bottle, as they say. So I'm a little concerned. I think, among other things, the, the continuity of oversight of the Russia investigation will be lost because Rod has been there since the beginning. Rod has been one of the most vocal protectors and defenders of Bob Mueller. He has said repeatedly in testimony on the Hill and elsewhere that he does not believe this is a witch hunt. The FBI director has said the same. But, you know, you worry a little bit that you have the acting attorney general who clearly doesn't like the Russia investigation. You have the incoming nominee who has had problems with that investigation. And by the way, the absence of Rod Rosenstein now means that there will have to be a new deputy attorney general. And you worry again that that person who will probably be the person overseeing the special counsel's office and its work could be someone even worse in these ways than Matt Whitaker and Bill Barr. So I look forward to the hearings next week, and I guess we'll have to see. Hi, Preet. This is Josh from Central Oregon. I was hoping you could give us a quick civics lesson on grand juries. Um, they're in the news a lot, and I find that neither I nor anyone I know knows much about them. Also, I saw a news article that Mueller had to go back and request a six-month extension to his grand jury. Why couldn't he just convene another one? Thanks very much. Hi, Josh. Thanks for your question. So there's no real mystery to grand juries, although they do their work in secret. So there's something of a black box there. But very quickly, and maybe at a future date, we'll go into much greater depth on how a grand jury operates. The most important thing to remember is that prosecutors like I used to be 
don't have absolute full authority to bring charges against people unless and until a panel of ordinary Americans, which is called a grand jury, composed of 23 people, decides to vote in favor of an indictment. So it is true that an agent or an officer can make, upon observation of a crime, a probable cause arrest, and that can be approved by a judge in a criminal complaint in the federal system. But at some point, in order to proceed to trial and to proceed with the charges and the prosecution of any person in the United States, you have to get a grand jury's approval. Now, there's an old joke that says, you know, a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich, and I leave that to other people to debate. So there are all sorts of ways grand juries can operate, and there's differences in the state system versus the federal system. But typically, for complex investigations, the U.S. attorney, in conjunction with the court, will convene a sort of longstanding grand jury. And often those are 18-month grand juries. For example, in the Southern District, we would have multiple extended grand juries made up of ordinary citizens, 23 apiece, who would come in for maybe two days a week, Tuesday or Thursday, or Monday and Wednesday. And the reason you have these long-standing grand juries, these long-term grand juries, is because some cases, whether it's money laundering or terrorism or cybercrime or financial fraud, typically, are complicated. And they're not cases where you can present the evidence to the grand jury, giving them enough information to vote on what is often a lengthy set of charges in an indictment. You can't do that in a day. So you want to have the same group of people week after week hearing the evidence, at the end of which they take a vote on the indictment. And if they vote in favor of it, we call that a true bill, which then gets filed in court. And that's what allows the prosecution to proceed. And that's what causes a life-tenured federal district judge to be appointed and assigned to the case. Now, with respect to the extension, you know, the system is not such that you're getting citizens to serve forever or in perpetuity. 18 months is a long time for a long-term grand jury. But from time to time, based on an application from the prosecution, you sometimes extend that grand jury because your work is not done. So here, obviously, special counsel's work is not done with respect to the Russia investigation and whether that includes obstruction or not, I don't know. It does not necessarily mean that they need all six months, although it is my view that there's going to be some pressure, I think, on the prosecutors and the special counsel's office to conclude by the end of the six-month period, because I don't think they're going to be able to get an extension beyond what will be 18 plus six is two years. So it doesn't mean they won't do it. It doesn't mean they won't go past six more months. But prosecutors, in my experience, myself included, really prefer to have the same people on the grand jury hearing the evidence, listening to the witnesses, understanding the testimony, understanding the facts, because if they decide they want to put in, you know, more evidence after the six-month extension to some different grand jury that they impanel with a different set of 23 people, depending on the basis of the new indictment that they want to have voted on, they will have to read back a lot of testimony, cover a lot of old ground, uh, re-familiarize a bunch of new people on the facts that they think are important. And that's, as we used to say, kind of a pain in the butt. So a lot of people on TV are sort of beating the drum uh, and breathlessly talking about this extension. I think it's a natural thing. Everyone knew that the investigation was likely not done as of January 7th, 2019. So he needs more time. He doesn't have to take the whole six months and he may go beyond the six months. But my sense is, my educated guess, is that we'll get some conclusions between now and July. This next question comes in a tweet from Paul who asks, no comment on the Veselnitskaya indictment, Ray the Prevazon case, which was your baby? Well, Paul, I don't 
quite know if it was my baby, but it was a case that I oversaw when I was U.S. attorney. By way of background, uh, when I was the United States attorney, we brought a civil asset forfeiture and money laundering penalty action against a number of people in connection with a Russian tax fraud scheme conducted in Russia. And our allegation was that certain high-end properties in New York City were part of the money laundering operation. And you'll also recall that the Russian tax fraud I'm talking about was the basis of what Sergei Magnitsky, who was Bill Browder's lawyer, was looking into. So there's a connection there. So fast forward to this week when my former office, the Southern District of New York, brought a criminal action alleging obstruction of justice against the now sort of famous Russian lawyer, Natalia Veselnitskaya, whose name I have now learned to pronounce, who, among other things, was one of the defense lawyers in the underlying case that I just mentioned, and also was one of the people at that famous Trump Tower meeting where they supposedly discussed adoptions. Don't believe that. So I hate to disappoint folks, but given that I oversaw the underlying investigation about which the current indictment claims obstruction, it's probably the better course for me not to comment extensively about uh, some of the things that went on there. But what I can say is it shows once again that the Southern District of New York takes obstruction seriously, thinks it's very important, uh, and is continuing to look at all aspects of everything that they have done. And stay tuned. This next question uh, is from Twitter, from KSW Esquire. At Preet Bharara, can you make anything of Manafort's missed filing deadline? Hashtag ask Preet. So that's a reference to a filing that was owed to the court by Paul Manafort's lawyers on his behalf in response to the special counsel's allegation that Paul Manafort lied about various things, and it's the reason why they decided to stop having him try to cooperate and proceed directly to sentencing. So, you know, everyone's watching this case like a hawk, hundreds of billions of reporters, and so when the filing deadline came and went, they thought something was amiss, and it seems like, I guess, the lawyers just filed it late, so it will still be considered, but that was not the biggest mistake the lawyers made, as you may have heard. They tried to file their papers with portions of it redacted, so that the sensitive nature of the things about which the special counsel says Paul Manafort lied would be kept secret and sealed until the court decided otherwise. Uh, but they screwed that up, and that's a pretty big screw-up, and so reporters were able to see what was intended to be redacted. So now the redacted portions of the court filing, in combination with media reporting, has made clear that at some point, and Paul Manafort concedes this, at some point, Manafort uh, shared campaign information, including sensitive polling information from the Trump campaign, with a gentleman named Mr. Kalimnik, who was believed to be associated with Russian intelligence. That seems very, very significant. And that starts to get to the core of what you would say collusion is. Why would you be sharing sensitive internal campaign polling information with folks who are connected to Russian intelligence? Now, the sticking point in making a conclusion about this is what was the timing? So it seems from the reporting that Paul Manafort was giving this information during the campaign and ostensibly during the time that he was the campaign chairman. That's really fishy. And that starts to look like collusion. As I tape this, there has been issued a statement by Paul Manafort's lawyers, the same ones who screwed up multiple times in this case, saying that the meeting and the exchange of information happened well after the campaign and not until January or February of 2017, after Donald Trump was already the president-elect. 
If that is true, then it's hard to understand how that could be collusion uh, or conspiracy or aiding and abetting because the campaign was over. It also was unclear to me why, if the campaign was over, that information would be shared at all. So I think we need a few days to figure out who did what when, but at the moment it seems very significant, but it's not clear how significant. So as you can imagine, there are approximately a million other things we could have talked about this week. So much news kind of overwhelming. Some of those things, including the issue of the border wall and the possibility that Donald Trump will assert an emergency power to build his concrete or steel slat wall at the border, I talked about with Ann Milgram on the new Cafe Insider podcast. So as many of you know, we recently launched a new thing, Cafe Insider, where we delve even more into the daily deluge of news and help make sense of issues at the intersection of law and politics. So just as a reminder, members of Cafe Insider get access to a weekly podcast with Ann Milgram and me, where we tackle the most pressing questions about what's happening that week. Members also get a weekly newsletter, texts from me when news breaks, bonus stay tuned content, and more. So join Cafe Insider for more real-time, in-depth analysis of what's happening today at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. My guest this week is political scientist Ian Bremmer. He's the president and founder of Eurasia Group, a political risk analysis firm. He's also a foreign affairs columnist and editor-at-large at Time and a global research professor at NYU. He's written nine books, which is eight more than me, including most recently Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism, about the failures of elites to address the growing spread of populism around the world, all too timely. We had a very wide-ranging conversation. I speak with him about the top risks for 2019, including the ongoing war in Syria, the rise of populism, and the bad seeds we're planting for the future. Ian Bremmer, welcome to the show. Very happy to be with you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So you have um, been in the business of assessing risk globally for 120 years? How long? 21 years. 21 years? Since I started the company. 1998, yeah. So before we get to this report, is it a report? Do you call it a report? I guess we call it, This yeah. annual report that comes out at the beginning thing. of the year, yeah. which you've been doing for, as we said, hundreds of years, called Top Risks. Yeah. And this one, I think it's well-named, Top Risks 2019. It seemed like the right way to go. <laughs> you know, and now you know, the Aussies, as you saw, went with 2018 <laughs> again, which seemed wrong. Although but... I might want to ask you, Top Risks 2022. Yeah. Then that would be very cool if you could assess those risks. We can do that. Sure. Uh, but let me ask you the first sort of very fundamental question. Are we all going to die? Yes. Okay, that that's all we got. Folks, we're done with the show. Of course we're all going to die. I, I mean, know, you know, but you know what I mean. I didn't mean I tweeted that. about I didn't mean that right at New Year. I said, you know, thank you to all of my followers and to the, you know, sort of 1.5% of you that aren't going to be here to see 2020. I hope that you enjoy this last year. So, it's very heartwarming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a very gentle man. I care about people. <laughs> um, I, Look, care, I care about you, Ian. Really? I've always felt that. Um, before we get to your to the risks, and you, and you you have a lot of stuff in this report from the Eurasia Group about China, about cyber, about European populism, about Mexico, about Brexit, so many things. But first, I want to ask you, how do you go about thinking about risk and global risk, and whether things will be up or down, and what the effects will be on the global economy, on individual nations' economies? 
because obviously you're very smart, you have lots of very smart people, and you put together this narrative and you make these predictions and you make these assessments of how things are going. What the hell is that based on? So, I mean, the first thing is the incentive structure has to be right. So we actually will leave this report on the front of our homepage for the whole damn year. And at the end of the year, the last update that I write for everyone will be to repost this and go back through and actually assess how we've done. And all the analysts know that. So it can't be seen by them as an exercise in, hey, let's just come up with a bunch of cool stuff and who cares next week? You know, it just can't be that. Also, we start this in September, like when people come back from their summer breaks and the rest. And it's a process of fairly serious discipline. We take all the analysts from all the different offices all around the world. I mean, the firm has almost 200 people. So, I mean, it's a pretty significant thing. And we beat on each other. Um, And there's a lot of different expertise um, around the world. And they don't always see the world, surprise, surprise, in the same way. And and I think that, you know, as you've done this for, Malcolm Gladwell says, you do something for 10,000 hours, eventually, like, you know, you get pretty good at it or something seriously wrong with you. 21 years of running, you know, Eurasia Group, uh, at some point, like, you start actually being able to differentiate signal from noise, do pattern recognition. So, so can, you, mean, can you predict the weather now? No, no, we can't predict, but we can predict the geopolitical weather. And what we see <laughs> okay. happening is geopolitical climate change, right? I mean, this is the kind of environment where it's very obvious that most of the things that are happening in the world geopolitically are trending badly. And none of them are really urgent. They're not going to blow up tomorrow. But anyone that follows this stuff has to know it's not sustainable. Anyone that follows this has to know that we're heading for seriously rough seas ahead. And when you say we, do you mean Americans? Do you mean everyone in the world? I mean the world because it's a global report. But yeah, I guess I also do. And I think the U.S. is more resilient than just about anyone. And as a consequence, one of the reasons why it's going to get so bad globally is because the consequences of many of the big geopolitical dangers will be felt more acutely by others in the world than by Americans with power. And yet we're the ones that have the most capacity to do something about it. So the incentives there really aren't aligned. When you say bad things will happen, that's a that's a broad subject. You know, that's a big boat you're talking about. Do you mean war? Do you mean recession? Do you mean other kinds of international conflict? Do you mean pestilence? I mean, what what kinds of things are you most worried about? Locusts is what I was yeah. first focused on, right? I mean, what do you say whenever I hear locusts? pestilence, I think locusts. It's just more of a biblical term. It's the most popular again, I know your religious pestilence. background, so I figured that that was <laughs> where you were going. Now, look, I mean, if you ask me what it really means, I don't know. If you look at the last two major shocks that were like bolts from the blue um, that hit the world, the 2008 financial crisis and 9-11, right? The interesting thing about both of those as a political scientist is that the United States responded to them by coming together. And not only that, but our allies came together with us. And not only that, but even people that weren't aligned with us, the Russians supported us after 9-11, the Chinese supported us to try to get out of the 2008 financial crisis. There was extraordinary resilience and harmonization from the global system in responding to shock. Now, I do not have any idea 
what the next, what and when the next major bolt from the blue is going to be. Is it going to be, you know, Ebola spreads from the DRC, which David Miliband is very deeply concerned about right now? Is it going to be um, the next major cyber attack, like what the Russians did against Ukraine, that spreads out beyond that and suddenly causes hundreds of billions of dollars of damage? Is it a major terrorist attack again, or perhaps most likely, is it the next major economic downturn? But what I know is that the geopolitical environment means that the response to that crisis is going to be very deeply dysfunctional. It's going to be blamesmanship. It's going to be fragmentation. It's going to be very deeply dangerous. Now, why is that different now? Than, isn't that always the case? People like to blame other people? Well, given what I just said about 9-11 and 2008, the answer is not so much, right? I mean, no, people like to blame other people, but people also respond and get in gear when crisis comes. They rally around leaders. They, they, you see the best from them. But there's so much more fragmentation geopolitically. The major relationships in the world have all deteriorated so badly. All of them, U.S.-Russia, U.S.-China, transatlantic, within Europe, within the Middle East. Literally all of those major international relationships have deteriorated significantly over the last 20 years. And that's sped up over the last several. That's a real problem. And furthermore, inside our countries, the legitimacy of our political institutions has eroded. Support for established political leaders has eroded, not just in the United States, but with the exception of Japan, I would argue, across pretty much every advanced industrial economy. So, yeah, those two trends, exacerbated by technology and social media and the filter bubble and things you talk about all the time, um, th- that, that's what's really led to the change. But suppose there's no big shock bolt like you described it, mm-hmm. as we had with 9-11 or as we had with the financial crisis. Are we still on enough of a downward spiral in terms of relationships being ripped asunder and deterioration in belief in our political institutions that if there's no change and no reversion back, that we're still on a bad slope? We are on a bad slope. That's, I mean, the the point, though, is that 2019 does not feel like a particularly bad year for political risk. In other words, with a global economy that's expected to grow near 4%, um, and the markets that are largely resilient to downturns, still a fair amount of stimulus in the system, still, I mean, unemployment going up to 3.9% because we're actually having more people come back into the markets. Those people are getting hired and they're starting to get retrained, which is particularly important, right? Older Americans coming back in the market that didn't know what the hell they were going to do. And now companies are hiring them and training them for a 2019 economy. That's a really good thing. So, I mean, clearly... I don't think 2019 is where we have the wheels fall off. But the long-term trends that I mentioned of the institutions and the leadership eroding, of the alliances and institutions globally eroding, and the rise of populism and nationalism, yeah, that's pretty clearly heading on a decisively negative trajectory over the coming years. I wish we could say this is just a matter of Trump is one term and then he's out and it all gets fixed. There's no way. It's not about Trump. How do you take into account in your assessments of where we're going as a country and as a world, the things that you can't know, the unexpected risks? Do you factor that in or you just sort of make your assessments and figure out the resiliency of those institutions to withstand something like, I don't know, an asteroid strike or an earthquake? How do you factor in those things that are not knowable? 
Yeah, I mean, a risk report is, and the work that we do generally as political scientists is not about crystal ball gazing. It's not about saying, oh, yeah, like, you know, sort of we know that Putin is going to choose this person as his successor. Like, that's unknowable. And, you know, uh, even the Brexit outcome, you're talking about scenarios and percentages. What you really want to do is talk about resilience and stability, the ability to respond to shocks as they occur, and also the propensity of an individual system to create its own shocks because of the kind of system it is. So a Trump administration necessarily creates more internal shocks, right? I mean, the incompetence of a President Trump in his inability to respond to challenges and threats growing around him, and in fact, his propensity to make them worse, for example, the Mueller investigation and others around him, that creates more sense of endogenous shock inside the United States. You've got to factor that in, too. But are we looking at the next, you know, what, what the next bolt from the blue is going to be? No, it's not that. It's not about that. How important are individual leaders like Trump, like Macron, like Merkel, who you say, given the fact that Macron is a 23% approval in France, Merkel is in, in the process of a transitional phase out. Why does it make so much difference that, that there's one person in charge of a country even as significant as France or Germany? How much of a difference does that make? Um, it, I think it's very notable that the three leaders you mentioned are all leaders of consolidated democracies that have rule of law, they have free press, um, they have strong checks and balances internally, politically. They have deep bureaucracies, even if not deep states. And so the limitations on what those individual leaders can accomplish, as well as their term limits, are very severe constraints on their importance to be able to reshape the political system in their interest. If you had asked me how important is an individual leader like Erdogan, mm -hmm. where suddenly he shoots down a Russian plane and what had been a good relationship becomes literally a relationship on the precipice of war within 48 hours. Now that is a dramatic change. If you ask me how important is an individual leader like Xi Jinping, who has consolidated more power since any leader, like Mao, right? I mean, enormously important. Putin, enormously important. But Trump is a guy. He's one guy. And most of the stuff that Trump tries to do fails. And it fails in part because... You don't he's think we're going to build a wall? No. Do you think we're going to build a wall? Is Mexico going to pay for it? Mexico is not going to pay for it. Mexico, it's interesting. Is that, that in right? your report that Mexico yeah, is not yeah, yeah, going to pay course. for it? Of course. I mean, you know, I think the idea that the Americans and the Mexicans are working together to actually send more money to Central America to try create create conditions that will make it more conducive for refugees not to try to leave is a pretty constructive thing that has happened under the Trump administration that not many people talk about because the wall is much sexier even though it is not going to happen. I mean, Trump tweets very effectively. And for CNN, this is a never-ending plane crash, right? He is the gift that keeps on giving to ratings, and I get it, right? I mean, if I am trying to focus audience engagement for CNN, MSNBC, I have to cover Trump all the time. But if you ask me, does that in any way relate to the policies that are being passed in the United States and the policies that are not being passed in the United States, the answer is no. You'd really think those you were talking about two completely different countries. If there were no Twitter, what would be different? Trump wouldn't be president. You think literally, but for Twitter, he's not president? Uh, maybe Twitter and Facebook. 
I think that, um, you know, if you look at Bolsonaro in Brazil, the new president, if you look at Trump in the United States, if you look at the success that the communists and the National Front had in France, almost not allowing Macron to get into the second round, the alternatives for Deutschland in Germany, definitely Salvini and the League. Uh, Instagram for them was most important in Italy. I think that social media has facilitated these populists and nationalists in ways that were completely unknown even five years ago. I, I think that this is the, the single biggest surprise thing that just none of us expected five years ago. Was that how you would have a president who in real time could talk to not just his 30 or 40 million followers, but literally all 300 million Americans because of the pickup in the press when he wakes up in the morning and has a crazy thought in his head. That's right. His ability to create and shape a never-ending narrative and not just Trump. Again, and ever changes. And ever changes. And across the world, right. this is happening, right? Is is really extraordinary. Remember, 10 years ago, when we were talking about technology, even five years ago, we were talking about technology. We were talking about the Arab Spring. We're talking about the ability of individuals to bring down authoritarian governments because of their smartphones, right. because of their internet. And suddenly, with surveillance and big data and social media companies, it's all about the ability of a small number of populist leaders to bring like for like together, create the opportunities for them to control the system. So you think there's a perversion now of the sort of um, high-minded ideal of social media and that on balance now, platforms like Twitter, Facebook are better for the formation of autocratic governments or better for the overthrow of autocratic governments? Look, I, I think that with your one million followers, you are a nascent dictator. <laughs> I don't know about nascent. I, <laughs> I know. I'm not sure about I nascent. I boss a lot of people Let's around. Let's spend some time on yeah. this. No, I do believe... I'm one that, of... Where's, am I in here as a risk? No, you, you didn't make it this year. But next year, I think you could breach the top 10. Do you, do you, so do you blame the Trump presidency more on Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, or Jim Comey? Oh... No, I mean, I, I guess I would probably say Dorsey at the end of the day. I really would. I mean, I think the fact are we making that, news? Are, they, are we making news? We might be making news. I'm looking uh, at the smarter people. I mean, look, I can say this. Twitter's not a client, so I mean, I'm not breaching any confidentiality. The, are you the violating the terms of your? Yeah, I'm probably violating my terms of service. If you no longer can follow me at, at Ian Bremer, that means that I violated the terms of service. I don't think that when Twitter got started that they actually believe that they'd make most of their coin off of, you know, sort of bots and trolls and illicit accounts. But the fact that that now is the case means they have a business model that requires them to support something that is a perversion of democracy. But it was supposed to be the case that technology like this could not be barred from, from countries that are trying to suppress speech. And now you find that, that people are going door to door in China to make sure that people don't have, and in, in Saudi Arabia, not have bad content on their phones. You have, a, you know, a prior guest of the show, uh, the comedian uh, Hassan Minaj. Oh, sure. Who had his new series, uh, Patriot Act, that's great. And Netflix Banned from Saudi Arabia. Banned from Saudi Just Arabia. Just banned from Saudi Arabia. So it seems a reversal of what the trend was expected to be, that, you know, proliferation of cell phones and the internet that should be difficult for people not to have access to so that they can have access to information and and speech of all sorts and also engage in speech 
is not really panning out. That's because uh, it's no longer about the great firewall of China, right? It's not about keeping information out. It's about shaping information. It's shaping the narrative. It's determining what people um, are talking about. Um, and that is much more powerful. The creation of fake news, the steering of people towards memes that you find important for them has become vastly more powerful than uh, the censorship that we discussed five or 10 years ago. Right. It's less about censorship and more about sort of confusing the truth. That's right. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't, you probably know on my Twitter feed, I mean, my pinned tweet basically says, if you're not following people you don't like, um, you're doing it wrong. I'm here to help. Right. And it's kind of the antithesis of the Twitter game. Right. Well, that's why I follow you, Ian. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's very mutual. I follow, I follow lots of people I don't like. Although, you know, in the new year, as I age and I realize life is short, there, there are a couple of people who I've dropped. Who have you dropped? I'm not going to say. Oh, come on. One or two. I don't want to give them platforms. Why not? Because some people are just overly nasty and terrible and awful. Yeah. And they Are they people you agree with ideologically? No. Ah, no, see? No, see, that's no, part of the problem. No, no but I, I, I follow a lot of people. Because there are some people that are ideologically aligned with you that are probably equally nasty. True. You want to name some of those people? They're allergic. <laughs> Look, you're going to go in on Twitter. You might as well. I'll go in. I followed Alex Jones for a while because I thought, I thought that he's so odious and so awful and so terrible that some part of me thought I should know that there's that kind of hatred out there. And I've always thought that it is important to have some sense of what the nasty is hmm. so that you can think of better arguments to make to people who might be followers of those people. But there comes a point when you see some things that are so nasty and horrible, I've gotten my fill and don't need to see that anymore. I get that. I get that. Look, the funny thing, and, and I think it has evolved, right? I mean, I used to follow uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, oh, yeah. uh, who I found incredibly articulate, an enormous pain in the ass, um, and also pretty hateful, right? But I actually thought he was the kind of person that you should sort of listen to to know what he's saying. And he, I think he has been barred from Twitter, but I think if he hadn't been barred for Twitter, I probably would have stopped following him more recently just because I think it's becoming more damaging. And, I mean, I used to never block anyone from my account ever. And more recently, I have actually blocked a few, very few, obvious anonymous Russian trolls. <laughs> just the anonymous Russian trolls. Yeah. I want to read something from the opening of your report, which strikes me because it's a thing that we've been focused on on the podcast and other work that I've been doing with the Brennan Center, this idea of norms and values. And you say, you know, geopolitical cycles are slow moving. And you say norms and values need to develop to become accepted and to shape institutions and societies over time. Once in place, they're sticky. And so barring bad luck, et cetera, et cetera, it takes years, even decades, to knock down a geopolitical order. And I understand what you're saying about norms being sticky. That's not exactly the impression that a lot of people have about institutional, constitutional norms in America under Trump. They seem a little less sticky. They seem a little more quickly able to be cast aside. How do you assess the domestic situation with respect to those norms? Yeah, I am still a strong believer that um, perhaps the most important takeaway from two years of Trump thus far is that his ability to actually damage American institutions is surprisingly limited. Now, some of that is because Trump is more incompetent than he is authoritarian or corrupt, right? 
Um, so his, uh, <laughs> they're not mutually exclusive. They're not. And of course yeah. they're not. But I'm saying that, I mean, look, if you look at his authoritarianism, I mean, the fact is he had Steve Bannon, he had Seb Gork, he had Mike Flynn. Those guys are all gone. And most of the people around him, there's some that are venal, there are some that are loyal, there are some that are just really bad. But you don't have a, a, a whole a cadre of would-be authoritarians around Trump. And Trump's ability to maintain focus on what authoritarianism would mean for expanding executive power just isn't consistent. In is it possible view. to be an authoritarian if you don't have sort of a deep, thinking process about authoritarianism and ideology and a philosophy? I think you have to be more capable. I think, you know, for example, I mean, you know, even character is a problem here. Like if Trump actually really believed in a religion or could pretend he did, if his family actually loved him and he loved them back, I mean, things like that, I think would make it easier for him to, you know, emote and lead as an authoritarian than he clearly can. His corruption, I mean, yes, look at all of these things that he does that are most most obviously corrupt more than any president in history. And yet they're kind of penny ante. I mean, we're not talking about like, you know, Indian military development or or Brazilian infrastructure or Russian metals and energy. We're talking about like a casino. We're talking about a condo building in, in Moscow. So, I mean, ultimately... The most defining characteristic of Trump is, you know, frankly, how incapable he is, both emotionally and in many ways intellectually, to occupy the office. And while that drives people insane, it doesn't actually do very much from a policy perspective. But that's kind of crazy. And I get what you're saying, that in in an environment in which you're worried about someone being evil and nefarious and corrupt, that, hey, you know, it's going to be difficult for him to do his corrupt things because he's so incompetent and he surrounds himself with incompetent people. So even the travel ban doesn't really fully work. Exactly. Because they did it wrong. Right. And people have said, you know, about Donald Trump, when when other people write his speeches, it's harder to find the lie because other people are better at deception mm-hmm. and putting those words into Donald Trump's mouth. Then he mouth. is. Exactly. But, but if we weren't in this moment mm-hmm. where you're concerned about this other aspect of Donald Trump, it seems crazy to say that one thing that's protecting America and protecting policy and keeping us safe and keeping the norms intact is that the leader of the free world, the, the president of the United States, the commander in chief, is incompetent. Look, uh, that is not the only thing I'm saying. Uh, the other things, uh, the many things that I would be saying is that we have rule of law in the United States and it works. We have an independent judiciary in the United States and it works. You know, the we, press too. We have, we have a free media in the United States, and it works less well than it used to, but it still works, and investigative journalism is very significant. Um, you know, we, we have a lot, we have hundreds of thousands of people that are pretty patriotic, that are hardworking and not very well paid, that show up every day to be in the U.S. government. You know what? When they see something they don't like, they slow roll it, or they leak. You're talking about the deep state? I'm talking about the deep, I would call it the deep bureaucracy. <laughs> Um, but, you know, they're not getting paid now. But Yeah, they're going to get paid. They're just they're presently furloughed. But, I mean, it's not like they're not going to get that money. And, by the way, I don't think that's acceptable. But uh, for for the purpose of accuracy, let's not say they're not getting paid. Federal federal workers, send your emails yes. to Ian Bremer. Ian Bremer. Ian Bremer. You can do that. That's two M's. Yes, two M's. Well, let's talk about one thing that the administration has done recently and assess it in terms of importance, risk. And by the way, let's let's, let's be clear that this is the first time in the history of the firm that the United States domestically has made the list. Right. So so let's talk about this one thing that that the administration has done recently and and see if you have a view on it and assess it in terms of risk, uh, importance, whether it's a product of incompetence or whatnot and what's going to happen. And that is the president waking up one day and deciding, 
reportedly after a conversation with someone you've mentioned, the president of Turkey, President Erdogan, that he was going to withdraw all our troops out of Syria. Yep. And he was going to do it in 30 days. Yep. And it caused kind of a conflagration within the government. People got very upset. And other people who have been more sycophantic about the president got a little bit of backbone for a minute and a half and said some things, Lindsey Graham included. And then we had the one person who many folks thought was the adult in the room, and you hear that phrase a lot about people in this government, but the Secretary of Defense, General Mattis, resigns. Brett McGurk, the special envoy, mm-hmm. resigns. resigns. And now, and now, now Brett, of course, was going to resign a month later. Sometime later. later. Let's be, a month and a half later, which is, again, for accuracy. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. So everyone's up in arms. You have the Defense Secretary resigning and writing this letter saying that he disagreed with various basic fundamental principles of how you go about defending the country and engaging in alliances with our allies. And now, even though it looks like that decision was made after a conversation with Erdogan, it must have made him very happy. Erdogan is now upset because now it looks like, based on what John Bolton has said... National Security Advisor, right? Right. We're not withdrawing our troops within 30 days, mm-hmm. and we're imposing conditions on Turkey before we withdraw our right. troops. And what, Trump's what also is going walked on? it back somewhat, right? So, but, but, what, but what's the question? What, what do you really want me to answer? I want to know what the hell is going on. In terms of? In terms of Donald Trump deciding to do something that a lot of people... I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess it's, it's a way of... It occurred to me while you were making the points mm-hmm. you were making that his own incompetence and the structure of institutions saves us from his bad decision-making mm-hmm. so that at the end of the day... We don't have the worst result. And look, a lot of people think we should be bringing our troops out of lots of places where right. we have forever wars. Yep. But nobody likes that happening uh, on a whim without consultation and without an assessment of the consequences and the risks and bringing your allies along. So let's, let me give you a bunch of counterexamples first, and then I'll answer Syria. Yeah. Okay. One counterexample, Paris Climate Accord. Trump pulls out but he can't actually pull out until January 2021, which means he has to win a second term for him to be able to effectuate that. And a whole bunch of American CEOs and governors and mayors are sticking by the terms anyway. And even Bolsonaro in Brazil, who campaigns saying he's going to pull out, is actually staying in. And Paris Climate Accord is staying in place. Trump pulls out of the Iranian nuclear deal unilaterally. And everyone else, including the Iranians, despite the fact that the Iranians are going to take a big economic hit, are sticking with the deal, hoping that Trump only makes it to one term. And even Trump's secretary of state privately admits that if we don't make it to two terms, that the deal is going to be back in place. The next American president go back to it. Right. You look at NAFTA. We say we're going to blow it up. We end up doing a deal after a lot of Sturm und Drang that looks a lot like the old NAFTA that's probably going to go through Congress and it'll be just fine. We look at the Chinese and we say we're going to beat them up and we put some tariffs on. But now we've got good engagement with the Chinese at the top level and Trump's going to try to find a way to do a deal. We look at the North Koreans, fire and fury. And then now we're going to have a second summit, even though there's no denuclearization. I can keep going. Even TPP, which is the withdrawal, was probably the biggest stupid thing that Trump has done internationally as he became president. All the rest of the countries have actually gotten into it, and a next American president could probably rejoin. And the Japanese and by TPP referring to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the major economic trade deal that would have been forty percent of global GDP if the Americans had joined. Very important in terms of how you try to deal with China as a rising competitor, developing alternative trade architecture. So, I've just given you a wide horizon of international things that the media has gotten insane about because comparatively incompetent Trump has done really stupid things 
And yet the actual impact of those stupid things on what he has tried to accomplish, we haven't even talked about the wall that he can't build that Mexico's not going to pay for. Haven't even talked about that. Suddenly, not as big of a deal as everyone's talked about. Okay. Now, again, I understand the incentives in the media for everything that Trump says to be a constant, oh my God, situation, as Rachel Maddow would say. But, you know, and that drives money but and drives eyeballs. But you and I are not in the business of doing that. And so, you know, that's why we're having this conversation. I try to drive ears. Uh, you try to drive ears, but you're not willing to do stupid to drive ears. You're not willing to do ideology to drive ears. And that's important. Uh, at least not in the ones that I've heard. Uh, maybe in the other ones you're sneaky about it. But <laughs> now let me... I'm not, I, just, I just want the truth, Ian. Everyone says that. But but we're, we're going to be better than that, right? Syria. You want me to answer you on Syria? But, but just before, before yeah. that... Do you accept what I just said then? Well, I think you make I think you make a lot of interesting points, and the question is, because you're not saying that it's a good situation, and you're not saying no. that these that these examples of conduct are good. It sounds like partly what you're saying is, with respect to the particular dumb thing that he has tried to accomplish, it has been difficult for him to accomplish that particular dumb thing, whether it's withdrawal from a particular accord or building a wall or whatever else. But there still is a cost, and a serious one, over time to these things happening again and again and again because it causes a change in the world order over absolutely. time. Absolutely. Insofar as, you know, it, it's like if somebody's trying to rip you off and, and they're important to you in your business or somewhere else and they, they keep failing at it, at some point you lose all trust in that person and sometimes you might need to work together with other people. So when your allies stop thinking that they can believe the word of the president of the United States... That's a huge problem and causes risk in a way that maybe we can't foresee right now. And, and no question that that had been deteriorating for some time before Trump. Assad must go. Red line on Syria. Uh, Russians must leave Ukraine. North Koreans must denuclearize. And I'm not just talking about Obama. I'm talking well before that, right? So American influence globally has been deteriorating for a long time, for decades. Certainly after 9-11, the forever war in Iraq, certainly after 2008 and shaken in beliefs in underpinnings of American capitalist system. I mean, we've been losing a lot of influence and the rise of China has been a significant problem. And Trump's presidency speeds that problem up. Trump's presidency makes more leaders more quickly hedge away from the United States as an example that they would want to follow as a leader that they would want to engage with as an ally that they would feel committed to. That is clearly true. Trump is worse for that. Now on Syria, since you asked about Syria, um, we're talking about 2000 American special forces on the ground. Assad has won. He has displaced 11,000 Syrians, half of his population, 5,000 are refugees, 600,000 are dead. He won the war. And he won the war because the Russians and the Iranians in particular, the Turks to a lesser degree, are the ones with skin in the game. They're the ones that care about the outcomes. The Americans, we said a lot of things. We don't care. Our willingness to do anything that was going to prevent those ridiculous atrocities to human beings was virtually zero. And the same is true for the Europeans. And so as a consequence of that... We lost the war in Syria. The Russians, the Iranians, and Assad has won. Now, the fact that Donald Trump has said he wants to take 2,000 troops out and didn't bother to talk to his head of joint chiefs beforehand or call his allies about it, that's a pretty broken process. That's a really stupid thing. That's very different from suddenly saying that, oh, my God, 
you know, suddenly we're losing the war in Syria because of Trump. And one further thing, when we talk about process, let's remember that the reason the Americans were on the ground in Syria was because they, we were fighting a war against ISIS. The arguments that have been used by the foreign policy establishment and elite to say we've got to defend the Kurds, we've got humanitarian issues, the Russians are going to have a vacuum, we need leverage for the political outcomes, none of those things were ever proved by Congress, ever, as a reason for American special forces on the ground. And by the way, I think that none of them were going to make a difference. The only thing, aside from process, aside from the fact that our allies are losing their beliefs in us, the one thing we are going to lose is 2,000 smart men and women on the ground who are eyes and ears for intelligence gathering, which we need in terms of fighting Hezbollah, which we need in terms of understanding what the Iranians are doing in the region, which we need in terms of ISIS. Taking those 2,000 troops out will be a significant hit to the American ability to continue to have that intel that we won't get in any other way. Um, when do you think they're going to come out? Um, I don't think it's within 30 days. I mean, do you think do you think they could still be there in a year? It's possible, but I think I, I do think that um, the likelihood that those 2,000 troops leave in the next six to 12 months is probably more than 50 percent. Even though the president of the United States himself said, who says he's he, he keeps to his promises, said they're coming out in 30 days. Yeah, he says a lot of things. He changes his mind, and his base doesn't care, and he hasn't he doesn't get punished for it. So I, I mean, again, that that feels like a question that you're not really asking me. That feels like a question that you, I don't know you, that means. you know that both of, both of us know the answer to. Here's what I'm struggling with. Which and, part? And, no, just overall. Okay. I'm going to take a step back. But no, I want to ask you about this, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, how, All we, right. I know no, you interview people too. Because, no, but we, because, we, <laughs> we, because how many times do you and I see people that are interviewing folks asking questions that they know, they know that everybody, including the audience, knows the answer to, but they want the gotcha moment? Oh, no. I, I don't believe in gotcha moments. What, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at and you and I have talked about this. You know, we, we know each other. The audience should know this. At We're even friends. Even friends. Yeah, even friends. At conferences and, and other places where this subject is discussed. And I actually don't know the proper answer to this. Because on the one hand, you say things like, and, and there's a lot of truth to what you say, that at the end of the day, you know, the worst aspirations that Donald Trump may have and the undercutting of institutions and everything else in this litany of examples you gave, it's very heartwarming, those things don't come to pass. So it's not good. It's a problem. But the country will stand, and it's not so terrible. And on the other hand, there are people who I also understand and believe and respect, and I'm sort of in the middle, who say people are not sounding the alarm enough. People should be using the word treason. You know, we're like the frog in the water that's boiling, doesn't realize how bad it's becoming because the frog is not shot in the head, you know, that, that famous mm -hmm. analogy and metaphor that everyone likes to use. And they say... What happens when you take the sort of optimistic view a little bit is that things get normalized. And then, you know, the, 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 and lots of smart academics say the path to real autocracy happens because of complacency on the part of people who say, well, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. He was stymied here. They were, he, you know, he was stymied there. And then before you know it, these people say, and they're intelligent and smart also, before you know it, our freedoms have been taken away. Terrible things have happened. And we're on a very, very terrible downward path. I mean, despots have been elected before they become despots. Look at Erdogan. I know that the institutions are different in Turkey. It's not like the United States of America. But I'm having a, a problem trying to understand how the public and, and individual citizens within the public, how alarmed and upset and active they should be given those two poles of concern. Well, 
it, it does sound like you are talking about your spectrum of people on one side and people on the other side. That spectrum only includes people that can't stand Trump. That entire spectrum. It does not include people who actually think that Trump reflects something that needs to happen in this country. Correct. And I think that's a problem, right? In other words, I think that there's a deeper problem than the election, of, than, than, who, than who Donald Trump is, which is how could a system like the United States get to the point where so many Americans either thought that they should vote for him or thought that it didn't matter, they didn't need to vote because nothing they could do would change the lies that they were being told by the elites in the system. Yeah, you're saying they're howling at a symptom yes. without thinking deeply about the root cause. That's exactly right, and which I see happening not just in the United States, but in the UK with Brexit and across Europe and pretty much every developed economy in the world except Japan for reasons that are very clearly unique to Japan. No immigration, shrinking population, very few adults on social media, no military involved in wars abroad. Japan, so is, very just, specific. Japan is just different. Japan is different. It's like Florida. It is like Florida in a better way. <laughs> no alligators. Right. Hanging no, chads. No, no people running around naked in convenience stores with weapons. I mean, they just, that doesn't happen in Japan. People, right? people you have, of Florida. You have to pay it's for Ian that Bremer in Japan. with two M's. <laughs> I thought you were going to say people in Japan. You, Ian you've, you've, in, you've insulted a lot of people and things. So yeah, me. but not that are listening to this podcast. So we're okay. I'm sending this to Florida. <laughs> you are a bastard. You know? <laughs> I'm going to send this to Florida. Yeah. Uh, but do I mean the answer to your question? I mean, in terms of what what does it mean? These people that say that this is treasonous behavior, I, I I am less willing to talk just about Trump's treasonous behavior because I believe that people like myself have been complicit over the past decades in allowing us to get to the point where people want to vote for crazy protest things. People want to break the system. And I need. We, I think we need as a country to spend more time focusing on that. Or the next time around, we're going to get someone like Trump who's competent, someone like Trump who's capable, which is much more dangerous to us. I think we should focus on that. And I don't think the media is focused on that. I think instead there is this incredible screaming match going around of treason and fake news, treason and fake news, which I don't think actually gets us anywhere. I'd much rather have the conversation about what's really happening. Uh, I think that's more useful. What's a globalist? A globalist is someone who believes that the system of open borders, free trade, or I should say comparatively open borders, comparatively free trade, and the United States with allies uh, providing the services of a global sheriff for marshalling global security, that that is uh, the best system for citizens in your country to support. That's a globalist. A globalist is very different than someone that thinks globalization is a good thing. Because globalization clearly has succeeded as a system. Yeah, so the reason I ask for definition is because yeah. people use these terms and then they, they take sides with respect to something mm -hmm. by assuming that everyone is talking about the same thing. Yeah. So when, when a guy like Steve Bannon, who was and perhaps is in Trump's orbit, rails against globalism, what is he, what is he saying? He's railing against the party of Davos. He's railing against all, all of these individual elites, the mainstream media, the academics, political leaders of establishment parties, the heads of businesses and financial institutions. Who he's have not, he's profited. not really railing at the thing that you were describing. Yes. It's a different kind of thing. Yes, he's profited. I mean, he, now, to be fair, Steve Bannon also occasionally couches these things in more ethno-national terms. And certainly among members of the alt-right... People have used globalism to mean bastard intelligentsia, Illuminati Jew, 
right? That is not the way globalism has historically been used, and it's not. It's certainly not the way that I think that intelligent members of society should use it. I, I don't think you should cede the term globalism to people who want to make it an evil, nefarious slur. Right. In the same way that people who are of a particular ideological persuasion don't cede the word liberal. Right. That's right. Exactly. Or people, you know, railing against homosexuals called them queer, and then we had the development of Queer Nation, and they owned that term themselves. And that struck me as a much more healthy way to go about it. So I'm glad that we're at the end of your report. You say we will all live forever. I do not say that. No. That is a different report. That's what I took from it. No, that's too bad. Ian Bremmer, thank you for being with us. Dude, my pleasure. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So, folks, at the end of the show today, I wanted to take a couple of minutes to share with you a sad story. And it's about someone you probably never heard of, but that I want to tell you about. His name is Patrick Egan. About five years ago, when I was a U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, a young man, bright, capable, warm, friendly, dedicated to doing the right thing, walked into my office looking for a job as an assistant U.S. attorney. That was Patrick Egan. Patrick uh, was the kind of person you wanted to be around, the kind of person you wanted to have in the trench with you. Popular, friendly, smart, dedicated, and an excellent prosecutor who I essentially stole from the Manhattan DA's office. And so he became a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. Well, last week, after an all-too-quick fight with cancer, Patrick Egan passed away. Now, there are a lot of people in government that you hear about who seek the limelight and get the limelight, many of them undeserving of it. But there are people like Patrick who you never hear about. And Patrick Egan, even though he went to the best schools, he went to Yale undergrad, to the University of Michigan Law School, he never ever sought fame. He never sought wealth. All he did was serve. After law school, he went as an honors program candidate to the Justice Department to do antitrust work. Then he went to the Manhattan DA's office, and then he came to the Southern District of New York. All he did was try to protect the public and serve the public while also loving his family and being a great colleague to all of his friends and peers every place he went. So at this time when we seem to be surrounded by selfishness and everyone trying to get something for themselves, I wanted you to know the name Patrick Egan, this public servant who cared more about doing things for his community and his country uh, than anyone else you'll meet. He leaves behind three young children, Connor, Molly, and Cormac, and also a grieving wife, Sarah. And I want to say a word to my former colleagues at the Southern District of New York. All of you out there, you know it as a prosecuting office full of people who enforce the law, try cases, And it is that. But for the people who work there, as I've said before, it's also a kind of second family. People care about each other. They take care of each other. And this week's loss is devastating to them, heartbreaking to them. And there's a lot of grief. So as you read about the cases, which will go on and people will be professional, you should know that the people there are human beings too. And they're suffering a lot because of the loss of their dedicated and beloved colleague, Patrick. So I send them a lot of love and I send them a lot of hugs. And I guess the final obvious point that we too often forget is that life is short 
and sometimes the best people don't live long enough. Patrick Egan, may you rest in peace. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ian Bremmer. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper. And the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.